This is an audio version of Rethink Priorities Welfare Range Estimates by Bob Fisher, published on the 23rd of January 2023. Heading Key Takeaways. This is a list of points. The first, we offer welfare range estimates for 11 farmed species pigs, chickens, carp, salmon, octopuses, shrimp, crayfish, crabs, bees, black soldier flies, and silkworms. Next point. These estimates are, essentially, estimates of the differences in the possible intensities of these animals' pleasures and pains, relative to humans' pleasures and pains. Then we add a number of controversial, albeit plausible, philosophical assumptions, including hedonism, valence symmetry, and others discussed at a link here, to reach conclusions about animals' welfare ranges relative to humans' welfare range. Next point. Given hedonism and conditional on sentience, we think, with credence 0.7, that none of the vertebrate non-human animals of interest have a welfare range that's more than double the size of any of the others. While carp and salmon have lower scores than pigs and chickens, we suspect that's largely due to a lack of research. Next point. Given hedonism and conditional on sentience, we think, with credence 0.65, that the welfare ranges of humans and the vertebrate animals of interest are within an order of magnitude of each other. Next point, given hedonism and conditional on sentience, we think, with credence 0.6, that all the invertebrates of interest have welfare ranges within two orders of magnitude of the vertebrate non-human animals of interest. Invertebrates are so diverse and we know so little about them, hence our caution. And the last point, our view is that the estimates we've provided should be seen as placeholders, albeit, we submit, the best such placeholders available. We're providing a starting point for more rigorous, empirically-driven research into animals' welfare ranges. At the same time, we're offering guidance for decisions that have to be made long before that research is finished. And here's a graph that shows the results. Placeholder welfare range estimates, life years. So at the top we have humans at one human life year, and then pigs we have 0.515, chickens 0.332, Octopuses 0.213, carp 0.089, bees 0.071, salmon 0.056, crayfish 0.038, shrimp 0.031, crabs 0.023, black soldier flies 0.013, and silkworms 0.002. There's a caption here that reads, These numbers are placeholder moral weights, in quotes, that were generated by models that Rethink Priorities developed. Very roughly, each one represents the estimated difference between the most intensely positively valenced state, pleasure, and negatively valenced state, pain, that members of the species can experience, relative to that for humans. These numbers are not statements about what you should do in trade-off cases. For example, you should flip a coin if given the choice to save one human or three chickens. Instead, they are part of a longer story about how to convert changes in animals' welfare to dallies averted which matters for cross-species cost-effectiveness analyses. For details, please see Rethink Priorities' moral weight sequence. Heading, Introduction. This is the eighth post in the Moral Weight Project sequence, and there's a link here to the rest of the articles in that sequence. The aim of the sequence is to provide an overview of the research that Rethink Priorities conducted between May 2021 and October 2022 on interspecific cause prioritisation. That is, making resource allocation decisions across species. 
The aim of this post is to share our welfare range estimates. This post builds on all the others in the Moral Weight Project sequence. In the first, we explained how we understand welfare ranges and how they might be used to make cross-species cost-effectiveness estimates. In the second, we introduced the Welfare Range Table, which reported the results of a literature review covering over 90 empirical traits across 11 farmed species. In the third, we suggested a way to quantify the impact of assuming hedonism on our welfare range estimates. In the fourth, we explained why we're sceptical of using neuron counts as our sole proxy for animals' moral weights. In the fifth and sixth, we explained why we aren't convinced by some revisionary ways that people try to alter humans' and animals' moral weights by proposing that there are more subjects per organism than we might initially assume. In the seventh, we argued that animal-friendly, in quotes, results shouldn't be that surprising given the moral weight project's assumptions, nor are they a good reason to think that the project's assumptions are mistaken. In what follows, we'll briefly recap our understanding of welfare ranges and our proposed way of using them. Then we'll summarise our methodology and respond to some questions and objections. Heading. How can we compare benefits to the members of different species? Many EA organisations use DALI's averted as a unit of goodness. So the Moral Weight Project tries to express animals' welfare level changes in terms of DALI's averted. This lets people conduct standard cost-effectiveness analyses across human and animal interventions. What follows is a compressed overview of our strategy. For more detail, please see our introduction to the Moral Weight Project, linked here. In the context of a cost-effectiveness analysis, a moral weight discount, in quotes, is a function that takes some amount of some species' welfare as an input and has some number of dallies as an output. So the Moral Weight Project tries to provide moral weight discounts, in quotes, for 11 commercially significant species. The interpretation of this function depends on the moral assumptions in play. The Moral Weight Project assumes hedonism, welfare is determined wholly by positively and negatively valenced experiences, and unitarianism, equal amounts of welfare count equally, regardless of whose welfare it is. Given hedonism and unitarianism, a species' moral weight is how much welfare its members can realise, that is, its members' capacity for welfare. That is, everyone's welfare counts the same, but some may be able to realise more welfare than others. Capacity for welfare equals welfare range multiplied by lifespan. An individual's welfare range is the difference between the best and worst welfare states the individual can realise. In other words, assume we can assign a positive number to the best welfare state the individual can realise and a negative number to the worst welfare state the individual can realise. The difference between them is the individual's welfare range. We're ultimately trying to convert changes in welfare levels into dallies. So, the relevant best, in quotes, human welfare state is the average welfare state of the average human in full health. The relevant best, in quotes, animal welfare states will be analogous. For simplicity's sake, we assume that humans' welfare range is symmetrical around the neutral point. So, if the best welfare state for a human is represented by some arbitrary positive number, then the worst welfare state is represented by the negation of that number. For reasons we sketch below, this assumption matters less than you might think. For some preliminary thoughts on the symmetry assumption, see a report linked here. Welfare ranges allow us to convert species-relative welfare assessments, understood as percentage changes in the portions of animals' welfare ranges, into a common unit. 
To illustrate, let's make the following assumptions. 1. Chicken's welfare range is 10% of human's welfare range. 2. Over the course of a year, the average chicken is about half as badly off as they could be in conventional cages. They're at the approximately 50% mark in the negative portion of their welfare range. Over the course of a year, the average chicken is about a quarter as badly off as they could be in a cage-free system. They're at the approximately 25% mark in the negative portion of their welfare range. That's the end of that numbered list. Given these assumptions, we can calculate the welfare gain of a cage-free campaign in DALI equivalents averted. Here's another numbered list. 1. Assuming symmetry around the neutral point, the negative portion of chicken's welfare range is 10% of human's positive welfare range. For instance, if human's welfare range is 100 and chicken's welfare range is 10, humans range from negative 50 to 50, and chickens range from negative 5 to 5. So, the negative portion of chicken's welfare range is still 10% of human's welfare range. 2. Given our assumptions about the welfare impacts of the two production systems, the move from conventional cages to aviary systems averts an amount of welfare equivalent to 25% of the average chicken's negative welfare range. Continuing with the numbers mentioned in the previous step, it moves chickens from negative 2.5 to negative 1.25. 3. So, assuming symmetry around the neutral point, 25% of chickens' negative welfare range is equivalent to 2.25%, 10% of 25%, of humans' positive welfare range. 4. By definition, averting a DALI averts the loss of an amount of welfare equivalent to the positive portion of humans' welfare range for a year. 5. So, assuming symmetry around the neutral point, the move from conventional cages to aviary systems averts the equivalent of 0.025 dallies per chicken per year on average. That's the end of that numbered list. The symmetry assumption doesn't matter for our welfare range estimates. Instead, it matters for estimates of the total number of dally equivalents averted. Suppose, for instance, that humans' welfare range is 0 to 100. On net, their welfare is always neutral or positive, whereas chickens' welfare range is negative 9 to 1. Their welfare can be 9 times worse than it can be good. Our estimate of chickens' relative welfare range would be the same, 10%. However, such an asymmetry would obviously alter the amount of welfare represented by 25% of chickens' negative welfare range. 0.225 dallies per chicken per year on average versus 0.025 dallies per chicken per year on average. To make the implications clear, we've developed a farmed animal welfare cost-effectiveness BOTEC that allows users to input their own assumptions about the skews of animals' welfare ranges to convert welfare changes into DALI equivalents averted. Heading. Some welfare range estimates. What follows are some probability of sentience and rate of subjective experience adjusted welfare range estimates. These numbers are based on, first, estimates of the probability of sentience for the following taxa, next, welfare range estimates conditional on sentience for the following taxa, and, finally, credence-adjusted rates of subjective experience estimates, based on Jason Shukraft's prior work on the rate of subjective experience about which, more below. So here's a table. It has columns for species, then 5th percentile, 50th percentile, and 95th percentile. 
The species are pigs, chickens, octopuses, carp, bees, salmon, crayfish, shrimp, crabs, black soldier flies, and silkworms. The 50th percentile column has been highlighted in yellow, so I'll read that one out. Pigs, 0.515. Chickens, 0.332. Octopuses, 0.213. Carp, 0.089. Bees, 0.071. Salmon, 0.056. Crayfish, 0.038. Shrimp, 0.031. Crabs, 0.023. Black soldier flies, 0.013. And silkworms, 0.002. If you want to check out the 5th percentile and 95th percentile columns, you can do so in the original post. We provide the technical details in a document linked here. We now turn to the more general methodology behind these numbers. Heading. How did we estimate relative welfare ranges? Given hedonism, an individual's welfare range is the difference between the welfare level associated with the most intensely positively valenced experience the individual can realise and the welfare level associated with the most intensely negatively valenced experience that the individual can realise. So, we looked for evidence of variation in the capacities that generate positively and negatively valenced experiences. Since there are no agreed-upon objective measures of the intensity of valenced states, we pursued a four-step strategy. 1. Make some plausible assumptions about the evolutionary function of valenced experiences. 2. Given those functions identify a lot of empirical traits that could serve as proxies for variation with respect to those functions, three, survey the literature for evidence about those traits, and four, aggregate the results. There are many theories of valence, not all of which are mutually exclusive. For instance, some think that valenced experiences represent information in a motivationally salient way, like, that's good, that's bad, that's really good, etc. And here's a reference to Cutter and Tai, 2011. Others that valenced experiences provide a common currency for decision-making, like A feels better than B, C feels worse than D. And here's a reference to Ginsberg and Jablonka, 2019. And others still that they facilitate learning, like if I do X, I feel good, if I do Y, I feel bad. And here's a reference to Damasio and Cavallo, 2013. Audio note, just going to read that one more time without the asides and references. For instance, some think that valenced experiences represent information in a motivationally salient way, others that valenced experiences provide a common currency for decision-making, and others still that they facilitate learning. In all three cases, there are potential links between valence and conceptual or representational complexity, decision-making complexity, and effective emotional richness. We conducted a large literature review for traits that could serve as indicators of conceptual or representational complexity, decision-making complexity, and effective richness, involving over 100 qualitative and quantitative proxies across 11 species. The literature review is available at a link here. Descriptions of the proxies are available at a link here. And for the quantitative proxies model, there's a link here. We aggregated the results. However, aggregation raises lots of thorny methodological issues, so we opted to build several models. For a variety of reasons, though, we ultimately opted not to include them all in our estimates. Some could be accused of stacking the deck in favour of animals, like the equality model. Some were missing too much data, the quantitative model. And some involved assumptions that went beyond the key assumptions of the moral weight project, the grouped proxy model and the JND model.
We then took the remaining models and used Monte Carlo simulations to estimate the distribution of welfare ranges, as detailed at a link here. Jason Shukraft estimated that there's an approximately 70% chance that there exist morally relevant differences in the rate of subjective experience, and an approximately 40% chance that CFF values roughly track the rate of subjective experience under ideal conditions. And there's a link here that shows that CFF stands for Critical Flicker Fusion Frequency. So we applied a credence discounted adjustment to our welfare range estimates by the CFF for a given species. Since this proxy suggests that some animals have a faster rate of subjective experience than humans, it supports greater than human welfare range estimates on some models. Finally, we adjusted our estimates based on our best guess estimates of the probability of sentience. We generated those estimates by extending and updating Rethink Priority's invertebrate sentience table and then aggregating the results, as detailed at a link here. Heading. Questions about and objections to the Moral Weight Project's methodology. Here's the first objection. I don't share this project's assumptions. Can I just ignore the results? We don't think so. First, if Unitarianism is false, then it would be reasonable to discount our estimates by some factor or other. However, the alternative, hierarchicalism, according to which some kinds of welfare matter more than others, or some individuals' welfare matters more than others' welfare, is very hard to defend. To see this, consider the many reviews, with some linked here, of the most systematic defence of hierarchicalism, which identify deep problems with the proposal. Second, and as we've argued before at a link here, rejecting hedonism might lead you to reduce our non-human animal estimates by around two-thirds, but not by much more than that. This is because positively and negatively valenced experiences are very important, even on most non-hedonist theories of welfare. Relatedly, even if you reject both Unitarianism and hedonism, our estimates would still serve as a baseline. A version of the Moral Weight Project with different philosophical assumptions would build on the methodology developed and implemented here, not start from scratch. Here's the next objection. So you're saying that one person equals approximately three chickens? No. We're estimating the relative peak intensities of different animals' valenced states at a given time. So if a given animal has a welfare range of 0.5, and we assume that welfare ranges are symmetrical around the neutral point, that means something like, the best and worst experiences that this animal can have are half as intense as the best and worst experiences that a human can have. Remembering that, in this context, the welfare level associated with best experiences that a human can have is the average welfare level of the average human in full health, which presumably is lower than the most intense pleasure humans are physically capable of experiencing. Because we're estimating the relative intensities of valenced states at a time, not over time, you have to factor in lifespan to make individual-to-individual comparisons. Suppose, then, that the animal just mentioned, the one with a welfare range of 0.5, has a lifespan of 10 years, whereas the average human has a lifespan of 80. Then, humans have, on average, 16 times this animal's capacity for welfare. Equivalently, its capacity for welfare is 0.0625 times a human's capacity for welfare. However, while there are decision-making contexts where a total capacity for welfare matters, they aren't the most pressing ones, 
In practice, we rarely compare the value of creating animal lives with the value of creating human lives. Instead, we're usually comparing either improving animal welfare, welfare reforms, or preventing animals from coming into existence, diet change leading to reduction in production levels, with improving human welfare or saving human lives. Whatever combination we consider, total capacity for welfare isn't relevant. Instead, we want to know things like how much suffering can we avert via some welfare reform versus how many years of human life will this intervention save? Welfare ranges can be helpful in answering the former question. Here's the next objection. I can't believe that bees beat salmon. We also find it implausible that bees have larger welfare ranges than salmon. But A, we're also worried about pro-vertebrate bias. B, bees are really impressive. C, there's a great deal of overlap in the plausible welfare ranges for these two types of animals. So we aren't claiming that their welfare ranges are significantly different. And D, we don't know how to adjust the scores in a non-arbitrary way. So we've let the results stand. We'd make similar points in response to, I can't believe that octopuses beat carp. Here's the next objection. Even granting the project's assumptions, it seems obvious that, insert species, have much smaller welfare ranges than you're suggesting. If the empirical evidence doesn't demonstrate that, isn't it a problem with the empirical evidence? No. First, the empirical evidence is our only objective guide to animals' abilities. Avoiding the twin mistakes of anthropomorphism, attributing human characteristics to non-humans, and what Franz Duval calls anthropodenial, that is, the a priori rejection of shared characteristics between humans and animals. So we're inclined to defer to it. This deference, plus the assumption of hedonism, do a lot of work in explaining our estimates. Given our deference to the empirical literature, we aren't positing differences if we can't cite justifications for them. Given hedonism, lots of apparent differences between humans and animals don't matter, as they're irrelevant to the intensities of the valenced states. So if our results seem counterintuitive, it may be that implicit disagreements about these assumptions explain that reaction. Second, recall that we're treating missing data as evidence against sentience and for larger welfare range differences. So while the empirical evidence is limited, we aren't using that fact to stack the deck in animals' favour. Quite the opposite. Third, even if the results are counterintuitive, that is not necessarily a reason to reject the estimates, as we argue at a link here. After all, it's an open question whether we should trust any of our intuitions about animals' ability to generate welfare, especially if those intuitions are driven by thinking about the practical implications of these estimates. There are many many other assumptions that need to be in place before these estimates have any practical implications at all. So if the practical implications are counterintuitive, those other assumptions are just as much to blame. Here's the next objection. I'm sceptical that insert proxy has much to do with welfare ranges. In some cases we share that scepticism. We readily grant that the proxy list could be refined. However, there is either a version of hedonism or a theory about valence states on which each of the proxies bears on differences in welfare ranges. We couldn't resolve all those theoretical issues in the time available. Moreover, we could reject certain proxies if we had independent ways to check whether our welfare range estimates are accurate. Plainly, though, we don't. 
so it's best to err on the side of inclusiveness. Indeed, the proxy list could be expanded. We opted for a fairly inclusive approach to the proxies, which made the project enormous. Still, there are many other traits that could have been included, and in some cases perhaps ought to have been included in a list of this length. If we can make progress on the relevant theoretical issues, we can refine our proxy list. Until then, we're navigating uncertainty by incorporating as many reasonable approaches as possible. Here's the next objection. How could there be as many unknowns as you're suggesting? After all, in this context, not unknown just means above or below 50%, however slightly. And surely that's a low bar. We thought it was important to have domain experts review the literature wherever possible. However, domain experts are academics. Academics are socialised into a community where it's appropriate to make some positive claim, like pigs have this trait or pigs lack this trait, without being able to establish that claim to the satisfaction of their peers. There are good reasons to value this socialisation in the present case. For instance, it's difficult to predict which traits an organism will have based on its other traits. Moreover, it's difficult to predict whether one kind of organism will have a trait because a related kind of organism does. Still, even though the probability ranges we mentioned earlier establish a very low bar for lean yes and lean no, above and below 50% respectively, we defaulted to unknown when we couldn't find any relevant literature. Even if our approach is defensible, other reasonable literature reviewers may have had more lean yes and lean no assessments than we did. Here's the next objection. You're assessing the proxies as either present or absent, but many of them obviously come either in degrees or in qualitatively different forms. This is indeed a limitation. We readily acknowledge that many of the proxies are relatively coarse-grained. Consider a trait like reversal learning, namely the ability to suppress a reward-related response, which involves stopping one behaviour and switching to another. This trait comes in degrees. Some animals can learn to suppress a reward-related response in fewer trials. And having learned to suppress a reward-related response at all, some can suppress their response more quickly. A more sophisticated version of the project would account for this variation. However, it isn't clear what to do about it, as the empirical literature doesn't provide straightforward ways to score animals on many of these proxies. This problem might be solvable in the case of reversal learning specifically, since we can, at the very least, measure the rate at which the animal learns to suppress the reward-related response. In other cases, the problem is much harder. For instance, parental care is obviously different in humans than in chickens. But we don't see how to quantify the difference without making many controversial assumptions that, in all likelihood, will simply smuggle in a range of pro-human biases. So, given the current state of knowledge, the present versus absent approach seems best. Here's another objection. It isn't even clear to me that insert species are sentient. So why should I accept your estimate of their ostensible welfare range? You shouldn't. Instead, you should adjust our probability of sentience conditioned estimate based on your credence in the hypothesis that insert species are sentient. That being said, there is deep uncertainty about consciousness generally and sentience specifically. In the face of that uncertainty, we think there's no good argument for assigning a credence below 0.3, or 30%, to the hypothesis that normal adult pigs, chickens, carp and salmon are sentient. Likewise, we think there's no good argument for assigning a credence below 0.01, or 1%, 
that normal adult members of the invertebrate species of interest are sentient. So scepticism about sentience might lead you to discount our estimates, but probably by fairly modest rates. Here's the next objection. Your literature review didn't turn up many negative results. However, there are lots of proxies, such that it's implausible that many animals have them. So your welfare range estimates are probably high. This is a good objection. However, it isn't clear how aggressively to discount our results because of it. After all, we know so little about animals' lives. In many cases, no one has cared enough to investigate welfare-relevant traits. In many other cases, no one knows how to investigate them. Moreover, the history of research on animals suggests that we'll be surprised by their abilities. So, of the unknown proxies for any given species, we should expect to find at least some positive results, and perhaps many positive results. The upshot is that while it might make sense to discount our estimates by some modest rate, for example 25% or 50%, we don't think that it would be reasonable to discount them by, say, 90%, much less 99%. In any case, we should stress that we aren't inflating our estimates. We're just following what seems to us to be a reasonable methodology, premised on deferring to the state of current knowledge. As we learn more about these animals, we should, and will indeed, update. In future work, we could make inferences about proxy possession from more distant taxa. Or we could try a modern missing data method to account for any potential systematic trends in why some species model pairs have no extant evidence. Next objection. Shouldn't you give neuron counts more weight in your estimates? We discussed neuron counts in depth at a link here. In brief, there are many reasons to be sceptical about the value of neuron counts as proxies for welfare ranges. Moreover, some ways of incorporating neuron counts would increase our welfare range estimates for invertebrates, not decrease them. So we already regard the weight currently assigned as a kind of compromise with community credences. Next objection. You don't have a model that's based on the possibility that the number of conscious systems in the brain scales with neuron count, that is, the conscious subsystems hypothesis. We discussed the conscious subsystems hypothesis in depth at a link here. The conscious subsystems hypothesis is a highly controversial philosophical thesis. So, given our methodological commitment to letting the empirical evidence drive the results, we decided not to include this hypothesis in our calculations. That's the end of the section of objections. Here's the next heading. How confident are we in our estimates, and what would change them? No one should be very confident in any estimate of a non-human animal's welfare range. We know far too little for that. However, we're reasonably confident about some things. Given hedonism and conditional on sentience, we think, with credence 0.7, that none of the vertebrate non-human animals of interest have a welfare range that's more than double the size of any of the others. While carp and salmon have lower scores than pigs and chickens, we suspect that's largely due to lack of research. Given hedonism and conditional on sentience, we think, with credence 0.65, that the welfare ranges of humans and the vertebrate animals of interest are within an order of magnitude of one another. While humans have some unique and impressive abilities, those abilities have histories. They didn't just pop into existence when humans came on the scene. Many non-human animals have precursors to these abilities, or variants on them adapted to animals' particular ecological niches. Moreover, and more importantly, 
It isn't clear that many of these impressive abilities make much difference to the intensity of the valenced states that humans can realise. Instead, humans seem to realise a much greater variety of valenced states. If hedonism is true, though, variety probably doesn't matter. Intensity does the work. Given hedonism and conditional on sentience, we think, with Credence 0.6, that all the invertebrates of interest have welfare ranges within two orders of magnitude of the vertebrate non-human animals of interest. Invertebrates are so diverse and we know so little about them, hence our caution. As for what would change our mind, the main thing is research on the proxies. In principle, research on the proxies could alter our welfare range estimates significantly. Right now, the proxies are fairly coarse-grained, and we aren't confident about their relative importance. If, for instance, we were to learn there are ten levels of reversal learning, and the shrimp only reached the second, that could significantly alter our results. Likewise, if we were to learn that having a self-concept is ten times more important than parental care when it comes to estimating differences in welfare ranges, that could significantly alter our results. Heading. Conclusion. Our view is that the estimates we've provided are placeholders. Our estimates will change as we learn more about all animals, human and non-human. They will change as we learn more about the various traits we share with non-human animals and the various traits we don't share with them. They will change with advances in comparative cognition, neuroscience, philosophy and various other fields. We're under no illusions that we're providing the last word on this topic. Instead, we're providing a starting point for more rigorous, empirically-driven research into animals' welfare ranges. At the same time, we're offering guidance for decisions that have to be made long before that research is finished. And there's an acknowledgements section here with the Rethink Priorities logo. This research is a project of Rethink Priorities. It was written by Bob Fisher. For help at many different stages of this project, thanks to Megan Barrett, Marcus Davis, Laura Duffy, Jamie Elsie, Lee Gaffney, Michelle Lavery, Rachel Miller, Martina Scheistel, Alex Schnell, Jason Shukraft, Will McAuliffe, Adam Shriver, Michael St. Jules, Travis Timmerman, and Anna Trevathan. If you're interested in RP's work, you can learn more by visiting our research database linked here. And for regular updates, please consider subscribing to our newsletter at a link here. This is an audio version of Rethink Priorities Welfare Range Estimates by Bob Fisher, published on the 23rd of January 2023. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.